This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Thank you. Thank you, Media Buzz Meter fans. I am feeling so great today. I couldn't have done it without you. To make this the most popular podcast in history. It, it just, I'm so grateful and I'm so much looking forward to a bright future. All right. Actually, I'm number 3,718 in the rankings, but look how excited I am. My little takeoff on Nikki Haley's speech last night, I guess you could call it a concession speech. And we'll get back to that. You know, I really meant to mention yesterday that the stock market hit a new high. Dow, 38,000. And it reminds me of uh, not too long ago, Donald Trump saying, when there's a crash, I hope it's going to be during the next 12 months because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. Also, I mentioned the Buffalo Bills losing on that missed field goal to the Kansas City Chiefs. There's an updated ratings figure. 50 million people watched that game. Uh, biggest ever, I think, in the divisional playoffs of the NFL. Now, without Taylor Swift in the stands, rooting for Travis Kelsey, eh, probably $5 million. <laughs> All right. I did want to mention, before we go any further, that uh, Charles Osgood has passed on. And he was a remarkable newscaster. He's 91. He was the host of CBS Sunday Morning. From 1994 to 2016, that's quite a run. But an obit here says that he really loved what he grew up with, which was radio. So when he would finish his TV broadcast, he would say, see you on the radio. And he wore those bow ties and his voice described here, it wasn't booming like Paul Harvey's or authoritative like Edward R. Murrow, but more like Rod Serling, the host of the Twilight Zone. Uh, and by all accounts, one of the nicest guys in the universe. So uh, Charles Good, Osgood leaving us at 91. Now let's get to story number one. So I stayed up late last night, but I didn't have to stay up that late to find out that Donald Trump had won the New Hampshire primary handily. Final margin about 11 points over Nikki Haley. And this was obviously Nikki Haley's best state, tailor-made, uh, sizable number of independents voting and some Democrats. She spent a lot of time there, not as conservative as Iowa, and she couldn't pull it off. Now, I think the last Boston Globe tracking poll said she would lose by 20, so it wasn't a complete blowout. But if that's your best state and you lose to Donald Trump by double digits— you didn't get it done. And I just think she needed to be more aggressive earlier. I mean, it was that whole period where she was just sort of lightly criticizing Trump, not doing five town halls a day, which is what you have to do. 
and not making news because she's very disciplined and she would just give the same speech over and over again. And that wasn't good enough. Now, maybe there's nothing she could have done given Trump's iron grip on the Republican Party. But, I, I, you know, it was very obvious that many of MSNBC were openly rooting for Nikki Haley. When the exit polls came in, but you couldn't use them to characterize the race because uh, the polls were still open. Rachel Maddow on MSNBC said, well, the Nikki Haley campaign uh, has got to be feeling good about some of this. Well, not so much when we got to actual votes. Then the polls closed 8 p.m. Eastern. And I, when I knew that Trump was going to have a big night was when I saw they make up the electorate. 63% said they were either very conservative or somewhat conservative. And Trump clobbered her in that category, I think winning 70% of that vote. She did well among moderates, better educated, but you know, there just weren't enough of them. And then you have her coming out, you know, with this thank you, and I feel so great. And for several minutes, it looked like she was delivering a victory speech. And then finally, she got around to one sentence. I want to congratulate Donald Trump on his victory. And then she proceeded to attack him, talking about a senior moment, talking about, uh, you know, I'm in this race to stay and people want a choice and on to South Carolina. And then there was even, this was, I thought, faintly amusing. We won almost half the votes. Well, in a two-person race, that means Trump's over 50%. So it's nothing to brag about. I mean, it's just, you know, she was trying to be upbeat. And you know who I vividly remember trying to pull that same thing off? 1992 is the first New Hampshire primary I covered. Bill Clinton had been sinking in the polls. There was the draft dodging controversy. There was the Jennifer Flowers uh, scandal allegations, which he denied, but which turned out to be at least partially true. And then he, you know, Clinton's like, I'm going to work New Hampshire till the last dog dies. And he worked his butt off. And then he came out early, as Nikki did, and he declared himself the comeback kid. Now, as it turned out, he finished second by significant margins, but it didn't matter. He was able to set the narrative in that pre-internet age. And that's what Haley tried to do. And then by the time she finished speaking, Trump's margin was up to 10% and then 11. Here's the story. 13 minutes after the polls closed at 8 p.m. Eastern, Fox News and NBC projected Trump the winner. About five minutes later, CNN hopped on the Trump train. That's all it took. That was that quick. Also, by the way, after Rachel Maddow went on after Iowa saying, we're not going to carry one word because this guy's a liar. We know we'll tell lies. MSNBC reversed its policy and did take a chunk of Trump's speech, along with CNN, along with uh, Fox, and jumped out when Trump turned the mic over to Vivek Ramaswamy. He had more to say after that, but that was a reasonable time to do it. It wasn't like, oh, he's lying. we got to get out of here. Um, amazing night. I mean, it shows that this is Donald Trump's Republican Party. That's all there is to it. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. He has an iron grip on that party, and he's beaten everybody. Nobody has come close. Not DeSantis, not Haley, not Tim Scott, nobody. And, 
you know, Haley's theme the whole week was stop asking me when I'm going to drop out. And now she's running against the political elite. And it is also true. Everybody now sees that Trump will win the nomination eventually. And so a lot of political big names are trying to get on that bandwagon. Now, when Trump spoke, understandably, she'd attacked him. So he counterpunched. He said she came out here and acted like she won. She didn't win. She did very badly. Trump also saying, you can't get away with this bullshit. She came out here in a fancy dress that probably wasn't so fancy. I, I don't know, like, why go there? Um, I don't get too angry. I get even. His fans love that kind of stuff. And he said, Nikki Haley's not going to win. But if she did win, she would be under investigation by those people in 15 minutes, meeting the Biden administration, but also clearly suggesting uh, that there's something there to investigate. So let's look at some of the coverage. Washington Post. If there was one state that appeared winnable for someone not named Trump, it was New Hampshire for Haley. And while she appears to have overperformed some late polling, she came up well short of a good argument for how this race might be competitive. Early exit poll showing nearly half the voters who made up the electorate weren't registered Republicans. 6% identified as Dems. Electorate more educated, libertarian, supportive of abortion rights than in any other, virtually any other major GOP contest. Haley's support came from the political middle, about 7 out of 10, were not registered Republicans. She won just 11% of very conservative voters. And in many other states, independents can't even vote. Trump's voters citing favorable, strongly favorable views of him, 8 out of 10. But for Haley... Only about one-third, almost three in 10, said they had some reservations about her. Four in 10 said their vote was about mostly about dislike for the other candidate. You know who that is. It sounds as if Haley aims to wait it out until Republicans happen upon a realization about Trump that they've stubbornly refused to embrace. But it's a difficult argument to make when a strong majority of Republicans believe Trump didn't actually lose the 2020 election in the first place. And Trump mentioned this in his speech. He said, we won in 2016, we won in 2020. He can't let go of that past grievance. Politico, Haley's stronger than expected performance, held down Trump's victory margin, keeping alive her dim hopes, and her slim chances now hinge on a come-from-behind victory in her home state. You know, on CNN, David Axelrod said, I don't even know if she can make it to South Carolina because it's, only, it's a month until that primary, February 24th. And she is going to, you know, get pummeled during that time. And then even Rachel Maddow said she can't win South Carolina. So the political piece says any momentum Haley can claim runs into daunting polls and an expensive month-long campaign in a state where, if not for her connection, she'd have a little chance of success. But, you know, when Nikki Haley was elected governor of South Carolina... That was a different Republican Party. This is now the Trump Republican Party. Can there be no doubt about it? I mean, he has beaten everyone in Iowa and New Hampshire, which hasn't been done since 1976. New York Times, his success in New Hampshire likely to lead to more pressure on Haley to drop out from allies of Trump, who include senators, House members, and governors. He fell short of his 30-point triumph in Iowa. Well, there were more candidates for one thing. Uh, New York Times says contest now moves to South Carolina. Uphill battle for Haley. 
Trump has led by about 30 points for months. There's little question a defeat there for Haley would be devastating, making it difficult for her to justify carrying on the race. And you know what else? She'd have difficulty raising money then. Now, earlier in the week, CNN dumped out of a Trump press gaggle when this, I don't know who it was, blatantly pro-Trump reporter asked this question. President Trump, what should the American people think of the injustice that you're experiencing? And the big concern, the election, they try to steal it again in 2024. How can people respond to that? Trump says, well, people are going to be watching very closely. I very much appreciate that question. So Anderson Cooper gets out of it and they say, of course, it was a free or fair election in 2020. Now, interesting that maybe MSNBC must have felt a lot of pressure after, you know, we're not going to cover any Trump speeches. You know, sure. When he's in the White House, will you change the policy? Then it looks like the policy has been changed. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Story number two. On the Democratic side, there wasn't really a primary. President Biden, aided and abetted by the DNC, made South Carolina the first primary, the state that launched him three plus years ago to the nomination and to the White House. So New Hampshire was not authorized to hold a primary, wouldn't get any delegates out of it unless that changes. But there was a feeling that Biden didn't want to be embarrassed that there was a write-in campaign, and he won easily. And what's interesting is that, I mean, you know, who's he running against? Marianne Williamson and Congressman Dean Phillips, who's angry with the press. And the thing is, you could say, well, Dean Phillips got 20 percent of the vote. That's a significant protest vote against Biden. It was 2,500 votes total. That's what his campaign has amounted to. Not a, a serious threat. It's never been a serious threat. And Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. Now, Politico says Biden's re-election team took Trump's win over Nikki Haley as the starting gun for a long and grueling campaign. Those aides believe Trump poses a far greater threat to the nation's democracy than his Republican rivals would, but they also feel the most confident about their chances in that looming matchup. Despite Biden's low approval ratings and recent polls showing the president trailing Trump in key battlegrounds, a wide swath of his own party doesn't want Biden to seek a second term. Biden aides and allies believe a face-off with Trump will help negate the incumbent's biggest weakness, his age, and motivate both swing voters and reluctant Democrats to turn out against Trump. Now, it's hard to argue that Trump is a turnout machine for the Democrats. And I think the Biden assessment is correct. I think, I don't know who's going to win, but I think... Trump is probably the only candidate that Biden could beat. If anybody of a younger generation, let's say Nikki Haley, had won the Republican nomination, I think she would easily defeat Biden because he's 81. And people know that and feel it and sense it. Meanwhile, this is interesting for a reason I'll explain in just a second. Uh, Joe Biden has approved a shakeup of his campaign. We love shakeups in the media. And he is dispatching two top White House aides 
to take over the reelection effort. Jennifer O'Malley Dillon, who's the deputy chief of staff, she was the campaign manager for Biden uh, in 2020. She will move to Wilmington, as will Mike Donilon, who's worked for Biden forever, for decades. And he'll be the campaign's chief strategist, the woman who I've been serving as the campaign manager, supposedly will stay on, but in a different capacity. And after the New York Times reported this, Biden put out a statement. I'm thankful to Mike and Jen, both for their service in the White House. And I'm grateful that in rejoining the campaign, they are stepping up one more time. Now, here's what's interesting. The person who had been urging Biden to do this, the person who said, look, the campaign's really being run out of the White House. So you're slow to respond because whatever the campaign decides first has to get White House approval. And then for you can't be nimble, you can't respond quickly in a fast moving environment. That was Barack Obama telling his former vice president this directly and strongly in a couple of those private lunches. And I think that um, it's actually smart advice. And I think, you know, Obama won two elections and I think Biden respects his judgment. And it just makes sense. I mean, how many layers do you want in the campaign? That's one of the problems when an incumbent runs. There's so many people. It's always a big campaign, although Biden's been somewhat slow to staff up. Number three, this is an important story or a potentially important story. It tends to get less attention, but low approval ratings and rock bottom consumer confidence figures have dogged President Biden for months now, says the Times. But recent data suggests the tide is beginning to turn. Americans are feeling more confident about the economy than they have in years by some measures. They increasingly expect inflation to continue its descent, and they think interest rates will soon moderate. Now, returning optimism, if it persists, could bolster Biden's chances and spell trouble for Trump. Political scientists, okay, here comes the but. There's always a but. You, know, and you can't just say, this is the way it is. It's got to be, on the other hand, or another factor to consider. Okay. But political scientists, consumer sentiment experts, and economists said it was too early for the Democrats to take a victory lap. Well, sure, you don't know what's going to happen. But the University of Michigan's preliminary survey for January, showing an unexpected surge in consumer sentiment. Highest level since July 2021, before the surge in inflation started. And that was still during the height of the pandemic. This measure has been recovering across age, income, education, and geographic groups. Now, ordinarily, that would give Biden 49% of the vote, but the job market is strong, gas prices are moderating, and of course, that Dow 38,000. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number four, let's turn to the war. I predicted this was going to happen, not because I have any great geopolitical insight, because it was just obvious. Hamas has rejected that two-month ceasefire deal to pause the fighting in Gaza that began after the terrorist group launched the October 7th attack that left more than 1,200 Israelis dead. Israel offered a two-month uh, pause in hostilities and the release of Palestinian prisoners being held by Israelis in exchange for the release of all the remaining hostages. Even offered safe passage for the senior leaders of Hamas to leave Gaza for other countries. But a senior Egyptian official has told the AP the Israeli plan has been rejected. Because at the end of that two months, 
Hamas would have lost its leverage of having, and just think about what a despicable and disgusting tactic that is to kidnap civilians. We should never get inured to this. Uh, some may be soldiers, but mostly these are not POWs. And Hamas doesn't want to give those up. They just don't. They don't have anything else. The country's been flattened too aggressively, many critics believe, by Israel. The death toll is now down to about half in recent weeks in Gaza as the war moves into a different phase. But there's not going to be a permanent ceasefire. Israel will not allow that. But a two-month ceasefire, you think it might be tempting, but no. And story number five is in the Los Angeles Times about the Los Angeles Times. Now we know why Kevin Merida, the executive editor of the paper, former managing editor of the Washington Post, former top executive at ESPN. In other words, a guy with a long track record. Why he was pushed out by the billionaire owner of the paper. LA Times announcing yesterday, laying off more than 20% of the newsroom. One of the largest reductions in the history of this paper. It's been around for 142 years. And I have to stop and say, look, the Los Angeles Times at its peak was a great newspaper. Not only great at local coverage, but tremendous Washington coverage, tremendous coverage in foreign bureaus around the world. Obviously, the newspaper business has changed. Obviously, lots of newspapers are in financial difficulty, as are many television outlets who've had layoffs and buyouts, as are many news online sites. And the paper was on track to lose 30 to $40 million a year. So Patrick Shun Shang, the billionaire owner, is announcing this and says, you know, um, today's decision is painful for all, but it is imperative we act urgently and take steps to build a sustainable and thriving paper for the next generation. Well, it ain't that easy. You know, all these billionaires come in. I am such a successful business guy that I will fix this. And to Shun Chang's credit, it is said that he, is, he invested about a billion dollars. But then came an additional downturn, first with the pandemic and afterwards. Jeff Bezos, same problem at the Washington Post. Spent a lot of money and then 240 buyouts. And some of the people getting buyouts are, are sort of pushed. Now, Kevin Murda didn't paper it over when he left. He said, I disagree with the owner both on editorial content and on the strategic direction, which means the finances of the paper. He didn't want to be the one to have to fire all these people. That's why this happened. Now, what are the details here? Washington Bureau has been decimated. It was once, you know, for years and years, headed by Jack Nelson. It was once a real player in covering DC politics. Washington Bureau Chief, gone. Deputy Washington Bureau Chief, gone. Business editor, Gone. Books editor, gone. Music editor, gone. Uh, DC, photography and sports saw dramatic cuts, including several award-winning photographers. The video unit was hollowed out. This comes uh, six years after Shun Chang and his family bought the Times and the San Diego Yugen Tribune for $500 million. And then came the financial setbacks. The head of the union out there, Matt Pierce, says it's a dark day at the Los Angeles Times. Many departments and clusters across the newsroom will be heavily hit. Now, they are going to offer some buyouts for people to volunteer 
And if some people take that, then some of the people who've already told they're being fired will not be fired. Now, that seems crazy ass backwards. Uh, why don't you offer the buyouts first and then see how many more positions you have to get rid of? Um, and here's Shun Shang saying, we are not in turmoil. We have a real plan. They're in turmoil. I mean, look, it's like a baseball manager on a losing team getting the ax because you can't fire all the players. Well, in this case, a lot of the players are being fired. And, you know, look, I, I still have ink in my veins. Came up through newspapers. I care about them. They're the ones who do most of the reporting, certainly on state and local news, as they've had to concentrate on, because nobody else is going to do that. And, you know, just by getting a new editor, if you have the new editor comes in, much smaller staff, how is that person going to work miracles? You know, hedge funds that now own newspapers do this. Gannett was famous for this. Come in, take over local paper and cut the staff. And then somehow we're supposed to believe through some kind of magic hocus pocus that with a smaller staff and fewer capabilities, it's going to be even better. I don't know. They're all eventually going to be just digital. Just a shame. I used to, you know, used to think of the LA Times. It was New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times, even though it got less attention on the East Coast. That's how I thought of it. And increasingly, you can't say that. Well, as I always like to say, we cover the waterfront here, even though today is the morning after the New Hampshire primary. And what are we going to do? Four weeks with no primary? We might have to cover other stuff. But I hope you'll stick around for that. I, I've been through a lot of these cycles. All right. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.